so these are the sort of um, I think the the Mad Mike Hall story is the sort of basis for that book, The Wild Geese, wasn't it? Yes, you, and 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 it, it's and Freddie a, Forsyth also he wrote the the Dogs of War, didn't he? Yes, they're very typical of those sorts of operations that occurred throughout the sixties and seventies. Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Ashton, and I'm back for more bloody violent history with James Jackson. Together, we're going to talk about moments from the past that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. And today we're going to discuss the mercenary, sometimes collectively known as the dogs of war, which is not always a kind description. You know, we love dogs. However, they are described as ones who serve or act solely for motives of personal gain, particularly a soldier who offers himself for service in any army, which may har him. The name is sometimes used as a term of reproach by nations who raise their armies by conscription, of armies raised by voluntary enlistment whose members are paid a more or less living wage. Like in many things, there are degrees by which soldiers of fortune can be judged. They've been around for millennia and emerge when dictators need to be overthrown, natural resources exploited and when large-scale wars conclude and a surfeit of trained men become available to engage in proxy wars and deniable operations. Jamie, why don't we start with what can be described as a successful mercenary operation? Yemen, 1962. It fits into the picture, the frame, of one of these fantastically successful mercenary operations. And it was run with so few people. This is what's amazing about it. Uh, there were only about 40 mercenaries involved, many of them French or Belgian, uh, operated out of a basement, essentially, in the London home of Jim, Jim Johnson, who had been CEO of 21 SAS, the Territorial SAS. So many of the men who went out there weren't even regular SAS, weren't even regular special forces. They were territorial. They were almost... They were city boys in the week, were they? Sort of? Indeed, they were. Actually, one of them was a professional wrestler, apparently. So it was all sorts. I think there were only two guys who had been... 22 SAS. That I remember regulars. that wrestling on the television when we were youngsters. It didn't look very professional well, to me. that's was... why one of them ended up in the Yemen. <laughs> yes. Was it John Haystacks? <laughs> <laughs> but the, but, but you know, what happened, the sort of thing that happened, and, and again, it's the sort of thing you get in uh, thrillers or films like The Dogs of War or The Wild Geese. Apparently a Hoover salesman turned up at the home of Jim Johnson and said, I've got the equipment. And Jim Johnson's wife said, uh, well, you better go down to the basement then. He went down to the basement. And there were all these guys refurbishing Schmeiser's some machine guns. And he, he had a hoover. He had a hoover. She just assumed he was one of the mercenaries. So was he, he Was he put in a bog somewhere? <laughs> let out. What ever happened to our hoover salesman? Yeah, he yeah, went yeah. to Sloan Avenue and never came back. Let out years later. You know, there were only about 12 mercenaries at any one time out there. What had happened was that President Nasser of Egypt had fermented a coup in northern Yemen and thrown out the imams, the royal family that had been there for millennia, and installed a puppet regime and sent in up to 70,000 Egyptian troops. 
what the West faced was the idea of uh, a Republican NASA backed by the Soviets using the Yemen as a launch pad for in the invasion, eventual invasion of Saudi Arabia and its oil fields. So this is a sort of first move. It, it was classic domino theory. I mean, it could have ended up with the Saudi royal family falling, then the Gulf states being taken, and then Egypt using that as a launch pad to annihilate Israel, which is what NASA wanted to do. And sort of Soviets link, lurking in the background. Yes, and they were very involved. I mean, they were dropping poison gas, phosgene and mustard gas, on a lot of the royalist villages uh, in the mountains. I mean, it's an incredible terrain. I mean, you've got 12,000-foot mountain peaks. You've got passes going through them. I mean, fantastic ambush territory. And this is why, once the mercenaries arrived and helped set up communications and medical stations... Uh, once they ended up helping to get proper liaison between the royalist camps in different parts of the mountains, then you started getting an effective opposition, mining of the roads, ambushes, that sort of thing. And the Yemenis who were sort of fighting on the side of the king or the imam, were they well-trained or were they just sort of Bedouin troops? What were they? They, they, they were Bedouin. I mean, they, they were hopeless in terms of organisation. They spent most of the time sitting around chewing cat um, and praying and not doing anything. But when they actually attacked, they were incredible marksmen, a bit like the Afghans. They, they ended up killing 20,000 Egyptian troops. They were, they were great marksmen because, what, they were hunters? Uh, yes, they were hunters yeah. and, and, and tribesmen protecting their patch. And it's no surprise that Nasser ended up calling the Yemen his Vietnam. It was disastrous for him. And in the long term, and again, you can see why the mercenary operation that was considered a success, it tied up a third of the Egyptian army. It, it made sure that when the Israelis attacked the Egyptians during the Six-Day War and wiped out their air force, the Egyptians were really on the back foot anyway. I mean, they were having a terrible time in Yemen. Their army was demoralised. You know, they were sitting ducks, really, for the Israeli air force. And so they got very hard hit. And this band of amateurs, and they were amateurs, they weren't backed by the, any government apart from the Saudi government who paid for it, uh, the, the British government was terribly ambivalent. Dick White, who was chief of MI6, uh, gave them money and equipment and things like that because it was, from, from the MI6's point of view, a fantastic way of tying up the Soviets and the Egyptians and getting uh, information out about Soviet tactics, Soviet, Soviet uh, military equipment, uh, and the gas attacks were taking place. In fact, the mercenaries even smuggled out a gas bomb, the canister, uh, back to Britain and to Porton Down for analysis. So you can see that sort of unofficial help. And there were guys from 22 SAS, the regulars, who were being let out of the regiment to go and uh, have a look at what was going on. But most of those guys who were out there, as I said, were amateurs, were part-time soldiers, were 21 SAS or ex-21 SAS. Okay, so, so to summarise, you've got the Americans who are sort of not that, they're prepared to give a bit of CIA support, but then their eyes are not really on the Middle East particularly. The Brits are a little bit more engaged, but only really from a sort of 
uh, an academic point of view rather than sending men in apart from these few mercenaries. And NASA had been riding a crest of success since the uh, Suez disaster uh, in the 50s. And this was his moment where he kind of hit the wall. This was absolutely the moment he hit the wall. And the people who saw the potential of what the mercenaries were doing, apart from the Saudis, was, of course, Israel. Very early on, there were contacts with Mossad and Jim Johnson and the others, David Sterling and co, flew out to Israel, met the head of Mossad, and Operation Leopard began. And from 1964 onwards, for the next few years, Mossad uh, were using uh, an aircraft to drop arms supplies down onto rudimentary airstrips, airdrop zones, put together by the mercenaries. That, again, was a huge moment for the rebellion, for the resistance against Nasser and the Egyptians and the new regime in Sana. It was really the Israelis dropping weapons that, that really helped turn the tide. But the major beneficiaries of all of this, once the dust had settled, really, was Israel, wasn't it? Israel had the foresight to see what could be achieved and tied up Egypt. It diverted Egypt to Nasser and it allowed the Israelis to prepare. And so by the time you come to the Six Days War in 1967, Egypt was a shadow. Its armed forces were a shadow of what they had been. And the Israelis had helped do that. And the 12 mercenaries who were in the field at any one time. And some of those mercenaries had, had actually been in the Second World War. I mean, apparently Johnny Cooper, who was out there, had been David Sterling's driver, uh, at one stage. So. Well, I suppose they were only 20 years older, so they'd be in their 40s rather than 20s, wouldn't they? So it's not... Yes, and they, and they were tough men. And, but, but anyway, so that is why Yemen, you know, it gave breathing space for the Saudi government, for the Gulf. It got, won Britain a, a, a big arms deal with the Saudis. It, it was an arms deal called the Magic Carpet where Britain sold lightning fighters to Saudi Arabia. And that sort of, in a way, was a portent of arms deals to come, the Al-Yamama deals later on. So it just showed here was a classic example of how mercenaries could help, you know, in this, in this fragmented world order where superpowers were vying and there were proxy wars going on all around the world, from Africa to uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula, you know, mercenaries have their role and it's fascinating that people like Jim Johnson later of course got the contract for uh, setting up the Sultan of Oman special forces so it, it, it did a lot for Britain's influence even though the foreign office was totally against getting involved in the Yemen in that theatre whereas the colonial office was very much in favour of it and did everything it could to to help the mercenaries. So, again, you got the British establishment sort of being incredibly ambivalent about what was going on. OK, Jamie, well, we started with a modern example, but let's go back in time now to the ancient world, as we like to do in these podcasts, and let's consider what was happening in Egypt in the time of the pharaohs. Well, back in the 7th century BC, you have Samtik I of Egypt employing Greek mercenaries to take on the Assyrians. And so it just shows whether it was the Yemen of the 60s or back then in 7th century BC, you know, across history, across the millennia, 
you have a need for irregulars, you have a need for mercenaries, hired hands, hired help, who, who aren't going to get involved in palace politics. So there you have the Egyptians, the pharaoh, bringing in these guys to take on outside invaders, people who are marauding, people who are attacking his tribes, his people. And those Greeks eventually settled along the Nile and set up colonies there. And it, it, in a way, again, it, it, it sort of presaged what came later with Alexander the Great and the sort of Ptolemaic pharaohs and the Greeks who settled there during those times and built their Greek temples. So, you know, mercenaries can go native. And again, you see that all around the world. You know, if there are enough of them, they, they end up settling, they end up being the go-to unit uh, on which the ruler depends. And they're often highly trained, uh, well, extremely brave and sometimes reasonably equipped. But once they come under, and I know you don't particularly want to talk about the Romans, but once they come under an organisation like Roman Army, they work incredibly effectively alongside legions as auxiliary troops if they're good at archery or they're good cavalry, things like that. And also, once you know they start settling and having families, before you know it, they are actually part of the uh, part of the sort of populace. If you look at the North African Caliphate at the end of the first millennia AD, you know you've 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 got them employing uh, Berbers, for example, great horsemen uh, for their cavalry. So those Berbers moved into Spain, for example, and and were used by the Caliphate to put down revolts to guard their flanks. You know, you you basically, as a ruler, you pick and choose, you select who has got the, 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 the right skills, just as Saladin employed Kurds you know, for their horse archers and other cavalry from other areas. You know, you, you, you pick and choose. Um, oh, well, that's the ancient world. In the 10th century, you have the Varangian guard. Yes, and they were really the guards that protected the rulers of Constantinople, the, the Byzantine Empire, and they were incredibly important. And they selected from really the known world, and many of their um, greatest commanders and their soldiers were Vikings, for example, uh, came from Norway and Sweden and the provinces there. And at one stage, th there were laws passed in Scandinavia saying that anyone who went to, to, to work in Constantinople couldn't inherit their father's wealth. because no, They were losing too many of their good men. They were losing too many of their, their good men. I mean, mm. even Harald Hadrado, who became uh, king of Norway... Uh, he was a Varangian guard for 10 years. He took part in the conquest of Sicily. Um, so, you know, they, 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 they drew... I mean, a lot of these Vikings, they went down the Volga uh, and, and s sailed south, basically. Uh, you know, in 899 AD, you had Vladimir I of Kiev lending 6,000 troops to Basil II in Constantinople. So, you know, there was this rapacious desire by uh, rulers to, to, to employ the best troops from wherever they could be gained, wherever they could be found. And, of course, Harold Hadrada met his match in 
north of England in 1066 before the Battle of Hastings when he came over with Tostig to take over the country, or at least Northumberland, and was defeated by our King Harold, who subsequently went down to the south coast and was then defeated and killed by William the Conqueror. So I think Harold Hadrada got a got an arrow in the throat and Harold of uh, Wessex got a got an arrow in the eye. So uh, battlefields were ever dangerous. <laughs> Gruesome stuff. Yes, but it but it just shows that, you know the the, 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 the there, there were always guns for hire and in fact if you look at the Varangian guard a bit like the French foreign legion later on you could see where the, the sort of ructions in world politics were, where there were skirmishes and conflict, because quite often the recruits came from these broken kingdoms. And after the Battle of Hastings, the Varangian Guard became largely Anglo-Saxon because they were drawing their recruits, not from Vikings this time, but, but from the Anglo-Saxons who were displaced by the Normans in England. So, again, the, it, it, it really became a repository for those who had been displaced, those who were still looking for a punch-up. OK, moving on a couple of hundred years, we've had, between the French and the English, the 100 Years' War, and after that, of course, plenty of soldiers, well-trained soldiers available. So tell me a little bit, Jamie, about the White Company. Well, again, like the Varangian Guard, you, you got a lot of soldiers who were still looking for work, who brought certain skills. And the White Company, originally known as the, the Great Company of English and German, uh, were roaming around uh, the city-states of Italy. And, you know, they, they actually fought uh, another great company and beat them in battle. And there started to be a bidding war. This was the sort of 1360s. There started to be a bidding war between Florence and Pisa uh, for their services. And this was going on all over the place because you had these soldiers who were available. And what the White Company brought along, apart from archers, were the sort of skills that had been learnt in battle, you know, new techniques, the idea of dismounting, uh, you know, putting their cavalry horses aside and using infantry to charge through where horses couldn't if there were sharpened stakes in front of them. And these were men-at-arms, heavily armoured, weren't they? These were very heavily armoured. I mean, it's always been said that one of the reasons they were called the White Company was either because of their white surcoats or because they had such gleaming armour. You know, they were, they were pretty disciplined. And at one point they were used to massacre civilians where there had been a, an uprising in Italy. They, they killed 2,500 civilians. So they were pretty fearsome, pretty bloody. You know, there, there's a freeze in Florence of Sir John Hawkwood who, who led them. You know, th these, were, these were famous individuals and any city-state who could acquire a good band of mercenaries, their own private army, was a city-state that could hold its own and dominate the area around. And, and that was really important. It's interesting that um, you don't really hear about the longbowmen, Welsh and Northern English longbowmen, sort of doing the same thing and going off being mercenaries after the Hundred Year War. Were they retained by the kings of England? Oh, they, they were very highly prized in England. And actually, the White Company did have bowmen. I mean, they, they, were, they were important. I mean, they, they did get about. And as I said, these, these guys 
they they wanted a fight they wanted the pay they wanted the loot and so you know wherever you got city states vying for influence and power you would get bands of mercenaries uh, offering their services and then we've got the Swiss Guard, who most people have heard of today because they are visible in the Vatican, where you can see them uh, effectively guarding the Pope. But how did they come about? They came about because the Swiss cantons, once they had gained independence, really, from the Habsburgs, from the Austro-Hungarians, they, they were highly prized soldiers, particularly because they were so good as pikemen. Uh, yes, there were rivals. The Italians tried to set up rival uh, pike formations, but were then massacred by the Swiss. The Germans also uh, set up units of pikemen, but the Swiss set the standard. And again, you know, because they were independent, because they could be bought as a formation from a canton, they were extremely useful. And they were war winners, just like English longbowmen. They were they were war winners, battle winners. Were they, uh, I mean, was this like the sort of hoplite phalanx or was it a completely different type of it's a similar. It, it was a similar idea and it took a lot of training and a great deal of discipline. And, of course, people like Machiavelli sort of despised mercenaries. You know, he, he said that it was bad for the state because they could turn on the state. And yes, they well, could. If they were offered more money from someone else. Well, yeah. Well, yes. There was a saying: "No gold, no Swiss," because that's what the Swiss responded to. You could almost say that's the, that's true today as well. You stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> but Herodotus, Herodotus, back in the day, had 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 called those Greek mercenaries, you know, men of bronze, you know, or. or bronze men from the sea you know they 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 were pretty feared you know the 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 mercenaries wherever they they were probably more like bronze men from the steppe though weren't they well they they, they certainly were certainly the ones who went to constantinople they were they were certainly from the steppe but but you know you can see a bit a bit like the pirates a bit like the corsairs who were often used you know, in a mercenary capacity, you could you could say that Moulay Ishmael, the, the the Sultan of Morocco, used his pirates in a mercenary capacity. Certainly, some of them were were Northern European, mm. and he used them to raid other countries, to bring back slaves, and feed his his white slave trade, the the white slave markets of North Africa. So they they were they were guns for hire. And today the Swiss Guard are still around, guarding the Pope, all 135 of them. Uh, after the attempt on the Pope's life in 1981, uh, I think there's a, a bit more attention to detail, a bit more attention to unarmed combat and pistol training and not just how to wield a halberd uh, and march up and down on ceremonial duty. So... There is still a need for pikemen, still a need for bodyguards uh, around the world. And you know, whether it's the Swiss Guard or mercenaries, if you want to call them that, or, or unofficial uh, ex-military doing bodyguard duties or security duties around the world, there is still a large market for it. OK, well... Then we come on to almost modern times. We're still in Africa. You've got Cecil Rhodes and the Boer War, that sort of period in Africa in the late 19th century. What's going on with mercenaries then? 
again, as soon as you get a scramble for natural resources, just like Africa in the 60s and 70s and, and today, you are going to get demand for security staff and for mercenaries, people who can topple regimes or guard regimes. And whether it's Cecil Rhodes moving up into Matabili land and using the Maxim machine gun at the Battle of Shangani River, for example, or the Battle of Bembezi. Check out episode three on the machine gun, Maxim's plaque. So you were getting uh, British soldiers and mercenaries getting stuck in and getting well paid by, by Rhodes. You get to the Boer War in 1899, and you have Uitlanders, you have foreigners coming in to the, the, the newly created Boer states of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And Who are these Germans, are they? Oh, they're from all over, and they're there for the gold. They're there right. for gold mining. <clears throat> Once the Boer War starts, you've got cowboys bringing uh, horses over for the British uh, from America, and some of those jumped ship and went over to the Boers. They weren't necessarily fighting for money, but quite a few of them were there for loot or just for the lifestyle or because they wanted to fight the Brits. They, yeah, were. they got settled down and married a local girl or something. Yes, and guess what? There were quite a few French fighting the Brits as well. So no different to Lafayette and the American War of Independence. Well, why don't we then um, move on to the French Foreign Legion, more operating in the north of Africa... Um, what about them? When were they founded? 1831. And what started as a mercenary group, a bit like the British using Gurkhas, using Nepalese, you know, slowly they get integrated into the regular armed forces and become part of the structure of those armed forces. So you, you get a unit like the French Foreign Legion, which is, you know, almost 9,000 strong. And Again, just like the past, just like the White Company, just like the Varangian Guard, you can see where there are conflicts around the world from the sorts of people who join, who are looking for a new life or who are looking for a military life um, or who have finished their military service in their own armies and still want that adventure, still want to apply the skills they've learned. So they end up in the French Foreign Legion. Do, uh, the, do the Americans have any kind of equivalent where regiments that they get from elsewhere or anything like that? Not really, although you know, if you're fighting proxy wars, you know you could always use your special forces to to train and fund uh, channel resources and equipment yeah. uh, into that local area and and again, so you sort of co-op the local troops. Yes, just like that Yemen. Uh, project in the 1960s, uh, backed by those British mercenaries. You know, you just need a small team, whether they're irregulars, whether they're mercenaries, or whether they're a special forces group. They might not consider themselves mercenaries. I mean, the, I'm thinking of the Northern Alliance when they had those. Um, were they Green Berets? Yes. Um, yes mounted. Right. They, I'm sure the Northern Alliance didn't consider themselves mercenaries of the American army. Oh, not not at all. But but the the Americans would certainly have seen them as proxies. Would certainly have seen them as a useful means of applying pressure, of of gaining control, of directing a conflict. And you can either do that through mercenaries, uh, like the Russians and their Wagner group today in Africa, but we'll come to that. 
but but this is really how mercenary organizations often work and and once they're absorbed into the military and get regular pay pensions it can end up with french citizenship if you're in the french foreign legion you can even get french citizenship by being wounded um, in the French Foreign Legion while serving with them. So, you know, there are all these traditions, all these rules, and they become part of the establishment, part of that, that regular structure. And the recurring theme, or seemingly in modern times, but probably going back as well, is this seeking of uh, people trying to get their hands on the natural resources of, of a country or a region, uh, or the removal and or removal of despotic leaders, or maybe not despotic leaders, and this having people, men available, mainly men, who've been fighting in conventional wars or other wars have been trained up and are now looking for something to do. The following is an extract from The Dogs of War, read with the kind permission of Frederick Forsyth. Behind him they lit up a weird spectacle which could have been drawn by Doré in one of his blacker moods. The floor of the aircraft was carpeted with sodden and fouled blankets, which an hour earlier had been the wrappings of their contents. These contents of the bundles lay writhing in rows down both sides of the cargo space. Forty small children, shrunken, wizened, deformed by malnutrition. Sister Mary Joseph rose from her crouch behind the cabin door and began to move among the starvelings each of whom had a piece of sticking plaster stuck to his or her forehead just below the line of the hair, long since turned to an ochre red by anemia. The plaster bore in ballpoint letters the relevant information for the orphanage outside Libreville, name and number, if not rank. They don't give rank to losers. In the tail of the plane, the five mercenaries blinked in the light and glanced at their fellow passengers. They'd seen it all before, many times over the past few months. Each man felt some disgust, but none showed it. You can get used to anything, eventually. In the Congo, Yemen, Katanga, Sudan, always the same story. Always the kids. And always nothing you can do about it. So they reasoned, and pulled out their cigarettes. Yes, you come to the, the, the... 20th century and there were plenty of opportunities uh, and, and the ones that people know about really are, for example the 1981 coup attempt in the Seychelles against the, the new dictator René and he had taken over, ousted the previous president and Mad Mike Hall who had himself been a mercenary in the 1960s in the Congo uh, appeared, was approached by the South African Defence Forces and South African Intelligence and put a team together. And he flew in on a Fokker into the Seychelles. And it all went horribly wrong. You know, one of the mercenaries, one of the South Africans, strayed into the something to declare line. And there was something to declare because they opened his case. And among children's toys and teddy bears, uh, he was there as part of a supposedly uh, the ancient order of uh, froth blowers, the, the, the sort of beer drinking club. Um, on tour. On tour. With the Kalashnikov. With the Kalashnikov. And it reminds me of one of the mercenaries heading out to the Yemen in the mid-1960s who was 
caught at uh, Tripoli Airport um, carrying plastic explosive. It fell out of his suitcase and he managed to persuade the security people that he that it was marzipan because that's what it smells like and that he was a confectionery salesman on a tour of the Gulf states. It's like he wasn't <laughs> made to eat some of it because I, I don't think it does you much good. No, it? well, that's what kills some of the GIs out in uh, the Vietnam War who are trying to eat. Uh, and that's another explosive. podcast of ours you can listen to. Yes, don't ask me which one. <laughs> it was it was the one that got us banned from Facebook. Oh, that's it, right. Yeah. No, Narco Warriors. Narco Warriors, it? Indeed, yeah. Indeed. Our lovely picture of the cannabis plant, and that was it. Well, there our you time go. time was up. There you go. We had our moment in the sun. But, but you know, this time in the Seychelles in 81, there was a firefight after the Kalashnikov was found in the, in the suitcase. And Hoare managed to end up hijacking an Air India flight that unfortunately landed in the middle of this firefight, got on board with his dozens of mercenaries, flew back to South Africa, and under international pressure, they were all sort of arrested, imprisoned, but, but were let out pretty, pretty quickly. But again, that was a classic uh, sort of... African venture, if you like, involving mercenaries. You see it in 2004 with the Simon Mann expedition to Equatorial Guinea. So these are the sort of, um, I think the, the Mad Mike Hall story is the sort of basis for that book, The Wild Geese, wasn't it? Yes, you, and, and, and it, it's... And Freddie a, Forsyth also, he wrote the, the Dogs of War, didn't he? Yes, they're very typical of those sorts of operations that occurred throughout the 60s and 70s. But even in 2004, with the Simon Mann operation, this time it wasn't South African mercenaries, it was South African intelligence that gave the game away. And by the time they arrived in Zimbabwe, ready to load up their airliner with weapons to fly onto Equatorial Guinea and oust President Obian, who incidentally ate his uncle. And that is another podcast. He, uh, I, I think that's in, is that Terence and their lack of taste? Which, yes. Which well, in that, that, I suppose on that occasion, he had a taste for it. He certainly did, a taste for liver. But so, so you got that Simon Mann expedition. He, he was arrested imprisoned in Zimbabwe, and after a few years, he was then extradited to Equatorial Guinea uh, in return, apparently, for a barter deal uh, by Mugabe of Zimbabwe, who wanted oil in return, Equatorial Guinean oil. So he got that and handed over Simon Mann. Uh, Mann fell ill, badly ill, in, in Black Beach Prison in Equatorial Guinea and was released eventually. Uh, and he's still around. So, but he was lucky. He was lucky. So many of these mercenary operations don't end well, uh, but you don't always hear about them. Okay, Jamie. Well, before we move on to the 21st century, we've got to talk about the famous German SS paratrooper Otto Skorzeny. He's worth mentioning because you know the professionalism of mercenaries can vary wildly, as we've seen from uh, the incident in the Seychelles, the incident concerning Equatorial Guinea. And Scorzani is a fantastic example of someone post-World War II looking for a job. I mean, this is the guy who had lifted Mussolini from captivity in the mountains, who had taken over uh, Bendlerstrasse, the home army headquarters where the bomb plotters against Hitler were holed up. 
so he took over there. He was a great favourite of Hitler's. He had been in the Alps, you know, the Bavarian Alps, essentially there to set up a resistance, the Southern Redoubt. He was involved in the Battle of the Bulge as well, wasn't he? Completely. He had sent his commandos in. Uh, Hitler had expressly told him not to put himself in danger and, and go there himself. But his men were dressed as American GIs and were summarily executed when they were caught. But he was a large man, fencing scar down his cheek, loved soldiering and post-war he surrendered he he came down from the mountains there was actually a german general who surrendered and was found to have 500 porno pics in his briefcase i love the fact all these people desperately trying to to surrender to the americans uh, who, who didn't actually recognize i think scorzani tried to surrender about three or four times before they realized who he was at one stage he was described as the most dangerous man in europe by the American press. Well, he was, he, you know, he was, a, he was a very, a very good soldier, but he was a horrendous sort of anti-Semite, wasn't he? Yes, and many of those SS guys ended up working for Arab regimes because they wanted to go on exterminating Jews. They wanted to wipe out the state of Israel, and Skorzeny was no exception. Who did he end up working for? President Nasser of Egypt, setting up his intelligence apparatus, setting up his commando operations. And some of the people he had trained would certainly have ended up fighting those British and French and Belgian mercenaries in the Yemen in the 60s. So that was Scorzani's. Scorzani even apparently became a lover of Eva Peron out in Argentina because he went out there and helped the Peronist security apparatus out there. A bit like Roman wives sleeping with gladiators. Yes, I think there's probably something to say about that. And, and Scorzani died you know, in Spain. Uh, he, he actually helped fly Eva Peron's body back to Argentina. So he, he was involved in all those far-right regimes and even got, apparently... Uh, Nazi gold to a lot of the Brotherhood, uh, a lot of the SS Nazi fraternity living out in South America after the war. Uh, he was involved in that. So not a pleasant man, but a good soldier and was certainly involved in mercenary activities for a long time after World War II. Yeah, surprising the Mossad didn't take him out. It is amazing. It, they, they, they might have tried. OK, so you might think that all of this is in the past, but it is actually going on this very day. Still today, 21st century, we've got the Russians, for example, in Africa again. They've become notorious because of the Wagner Group, linked to Russian oligarchs who in turn are linked to and pay a large percentage of their earnings to one Vladimir Putin. So... This, again, is a typical example of the state employing proxies, employing mercenaries to further their aims. And if you take a country like the Central African Republic, first of all, Russians went in to guard the president. There was a UN arms embargo in 2017, 2018. So the Russians go in, they take the place of the Belgians or the French and others, and they start moving across the country. 
uh, as a spearhead, really, for taking over mines, for taking over uh, large commercial operations, uh, killing mine owners. This and is all about gold, yeah. It, it, gold and other minerals. Yeah. And it's, it's quite a fight. I mean, and they use very sophisticated technology. Again, it's not just a mercenary and a rifle. These are organisations that have air assets. Uh, you know, the, just this year in February, uh, there are claims that uh, a helicopter, an armed helicopter, uh, used by the Wagner Group, machine gunned a mosque in the city of Bambari in the Central African Republic because there is an ongoing fight between the resistance groups who are largely Muslim and the Wagner group, you know, those mercenaries who are representing and fighting for and providing security for uh, Russian mining interests. So you know, throughout Africa, you're getting this pattern this cycle repeat itself. Yeah, because we tend to hear more about the Chinese in Africa, you know, buying up minerals, uh, you know, getting stuck in, not, not so much the Russians. And you're getting the, the, the same old cycle of security advisors from Britain, from America, working for legitimate mining interests, for Western mining concerns or international mining uh, corporations. And they are now up against you know, Russian mercenaries or Chinese-backed groups who are either trying to undermine the country or take over those mining operations. So what you got in the 1960s and 1970s is rearing its head again. And meantime, you have the French Foreign Legion and other groups uh, and British Armed Forces fighting in parts of sub-Saharan Africa uh, or North Africa, uh, trying to keep the lid on Islamic fundamentalism, Islamic terrorism. So it's the same melting pot, the same stamping ground, the same war-torn areas that are being fought over again. That's great, Jamie. So we've had a full roundup from ancient times to the 21st century. Uh, we've almost finished, but of course we do have a little PS for you. What have you got for us, Jamie? Today's PS is really an example of what goes on in the mercenary world. And the story I want to relate is of a helicopter pilot and, and, and really the career path that so many of these people take. It can be sort of fairly oblique, fairly erratic. And this was a British helicopter pilot who started with the British Armed Forces, ended up with the Selu Scouts in Rhodesia, and also flew denial operations to the Americans in Afghanistan. So again, employed by different people. But he told me a story of flying a, a squad of Selu Scouts, the Rhodesian Special Forces, into Zambia to attack uh, the guerrilla uh, outfits there, Sapu outfits there. And he flew in this squad with other helicopters. It was a very hot landing zone, rounds going off everywhere so the mission was aborted but one of the guys one of the Sully scouts had jumped out so the helicopter circled for quite some time and decided to go back in and pick up the corpse because they knew the guy would be dead so they went in and landed but the man was still alive and in the meantime he had killed over a dozen gorillas while he was on the ground and that night this pilot that I was chatting to told me that uh, he had been having a drink with that guy who had survived 
and raised a drink to him and said, I have to say, I really admire what you did today. That was quite something. And the Rhodesian Special Forces guy, the Sadhu Scout, turned around and looked at him and went, what did you expect me to do? Resign. <laughs> the spirit of the true Boer. Yes. I mean, they're, they're, they're hard men. They're hard men. And there's one more short story, and it's not really mercenary, but it's a great story, so I thought I'd tell you. Uh, I, I was chatting to the former head of Argentine Special Forces who had been wounded by a British bullet during the Falklands War and he's called Diego, and very nice chap. And he was telling me that he had met Margaret Thatcher, and she was delighted to, 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 to meet him. After chatting for a while, she just looked at him and went, I'm so pleased we didn't kill you, Diego. <laughs> Good old Maggie. Well, that reminds me, I've got to take my Maggie out for a walk, Jamie. So, so there you have it, folks. The good, the bad, and certainly some of them were ugly. Speak for yourself, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe to BVH on your podcast app. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can also find us on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.